Welcome to Marginal Investigations. I'm your host, J.W. Rich, and this is The Life and Times of Richard Cantillon. The bank always has on hand a reserve of money received from the stockholders and depositors. On the basis of these cash reserves, a bank can create credit. As a result of the loan to Mr. Morton, the asset, loans and discounts, is added. To balance this, the deposits figure is increased by the amount of the loan which is left with the bank. So, besides providing a safe place for depositing money and making it easy for people to transfer credit from one to another, a bank serves a community by making additional credit available for many purposes. If you look at most famous intellectuals throughout history, we remember them not because of the lives that they lived, but because of the words that they said, the ideas that they had, or maybe the books that they wrote. That isn't to say that they lived boring or uninteresting lives, but that's simply not what we remember them for. While this isn't true for all intellectuals, obviously, it is a general rule of thumb. One of the most fascinating exceptions to this rule is the subject of our episode today and that is a man by the name of Richard Cantillon. Cantillon is famous for his work in economics, specifically his 1755 book, and forgive me for my pronunciation here, The Essay sur la Nature de Commerce en General, which translates roughly to The Essay on the Nature of Commerce in General. To avoid having to repeat that title every time I mention it throughout this episode here, I will refer to it simply as The Essay, or Cantillon's Essay. Now what's so notable about Cantillon's essay is that it was one of the first major works ever published on economics. It predates the much more famous Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith by over two decades. The work was so influential at such an early point that many have even referred to Cantillon as the founder of economics. And these include people like F.A. Hayek and Murray Rothbard that have given him this title. William Stanley Jevons, the great English economist of the late 19th century, later writing about Cantillon said, quote, Cantillon's essay is, more emphatically than any other single work, the cradle of political economy. While founding economics, or at the very least laying the groundwork for what would later become economics, would be enough to cement Cantillon's place in history, Cantillon himself lived a very interesting and eccentric life, one that was full of covert spying, wild stock speculation, fierce courtroom battles, and a murder mystery that remains unsolved even to this day. While Cantillon's essay is worthy of discussion in and of itself, it can be given its full justice without also understanding the man behind the work, with all of his adventures and escapades. And, as we'll later see, it was precisely because of the life that Cantillon lived that gave him the kind of experience necessary to be able to write the kind of book that he did. In fact, if Cantillon wasn't the kind of swashbuckling businessman that he was, the entire history of economics might look radically different. Because of this, there isn't any way for us to distinguish between Cantillon the intellectual and Cantillon the man. If you don't have one, you don't have the other. Thus, if we want to understand the essay, then we have to understand the events of Cantillon's life. In order for us to understand what he wrote, we have to look at what he did. If we want to understand how he thought, then we have to look at what he experienced. With that being said, and without any further ado, I present to you The Life and Times of Richard Cantillon. It's difficult to tell exactly when Cantillon was born. We know it was in Ireland, and it was probably sometime in the 1680s, although record-keeping was not very good or precise back then, particularly for those who were poor or working class, so these kinds of things are always vague and somewhat up in the air. 
Some of Cantillon's biographers have claimed that he was born a little bit later, sometime in the 1690s or so. Part of this confusion is because there are not just one Richard Cantillon, but many Richard Cantillons. Apparently it was something of a family name. As a result, the Richard Cantillon that we're studying today is just one of many Richard Cantillons. The first piece of definite information we have on Cantillon's life is that he immigrated from Ireland to France in 1707. The Cantillons as a family were originally from France, as you might be able to tell from the pronunciation of their last name, so this was Cantillon returning back to his ancestral homeland. Cantillon stayed in France for four years before his career really got kicked off in 1711 by accepting a job for the British government working for the Paymaster General. Now at this time, Great Britain was fighting a war that would come to be known as the War of Spanish Succession. Now I'm not going to try to break down what this war was about because I would need an entire separate podcast just to do that, but bottom line, Great Britain right now was at war. It was the role of the Paymaster General to ensure that any finances related to the war effort got where they needed to go. This would include things like salaries that would be paid to the soldiers, funds to procure new equipment that the soldiers might use, and so forth. As a result of Great Britain being at war, it isn't difficult to imagine that they would be looking for talented young individuals to help fill their ranks. Cantillon started off working for the assistant to the Paymaster General, but would soon find himself running errands for the Paymaster General himself a man by the name of James Bridges. Bridges appears to have been a less than reputable individual. During his time as Paymaster General, he would leverage his own position for his own financial gain through lots of under-the-table dealings. At the end of his eight years in office, he managed to amass a very large and impressive fortune for himself, so apparently he was pretty good at doing so. As Paymaster General, Bridges had lots of responsibilities in London, so he couldn't carry out all of his schemes himself. That's where Cantillon comes in. Bridges saw Cantillon as a capable enough individual, so he trusted him to help carry out all of his side dealings and even allow Cantillon to take a little piece for himself whenever all said and done. One example of this dynamic at play is the Vernon Cloth Incident. A businessman from Turkey, known only to us as Mr. Vernon, sent two shipments of cloth to Spain in 1711 and 1712. The objective behind these shipments was for Bridges' agents to sell the cloth to either the British or Spanish armies who would need them for uniforms, blankets, and so forth. Once the cloth was sold, Bridges would make sure that the money was transferred in London to the appropriate accounts. It was Cantillon's job to ensure that the bills of sale for the cloth would get back to London to give to Bridges. Mr. Vernon would make money off of selling his cloth, Bridges would make money off of selling it to either the British or the Spanish armies, and Cantillon would be given a little off the top for his troubles. Everyone wins in the end, except for the British government, which has to pay for the whole thing. Cantillon would remain in the service of the Paymaster General for a total of three years, from 1711 to 1714. After this, he decided to set back out on his own and decided to return to France, specifically to Paris. Cantillon made the decision to go to Paris probably because of his cousin who was working as a banker there. Now it's here that we run into some Cantillon family tree difficulties, because Cantillon's cousin in Paris was also named Richard Cantillon. He appears to have mostly gone by the title of the Chevalier, so we'll just refer to him by that title throughout this episode. Now the Chevalier was a banker, but apparently he wasn't a very good one. His bank was experiencing some serious financial difficulties whenever Cantillon moved to Paris. Now, we don't have a good record on exactly what the root of these financial troubles were. It might have been that people just simply lost confidence in the Chevalier's bank. People didn't trust him, so they didn't want to put their money there. Regardless, the Chevalier's bank had narrowly avoided bankruptcy and was on the verge of closing down for good. 
Cantillon agreed to work for his cousin, but the bank failed to see any improvements over the next few years. Eventually, Cantillon agreed to just buy out the bank directly from the Chevalier in 1716. Even without his bank, the Chevalier was not free of his financial troubles. He would be forced to declare bankruptcy in 1717 and would later pass away that year. Cantillon was now left to run the bank all on his own. We know from the relatively low price he had to pay to buy out his cousin's shares as well as the bank's balance sheet that it was on the verge of bankruptcy itself. However, Cantillon had learned a thing or two from his three years in service to the Paymaster General. Specifically, he still had lots of contacts in the major financial hubs of the day, including London, Amsterdam, and Paris. For any bank looking to get back on its feet, the number one priority is instilling enough confidence in its customers to actually trust them with their money. Over time, Cantillon was able to wine and dine many of his former contacts and associates into actually trusting him with money at his bank. As the deposits at Cantillon's bank grew, more and more people were willing to trust Cantillon with their money. This in turn increases the deposits at his bank, which makes people even more willing to trust him, and so on and so forth. As a result of these contacts in the major financial hubs throughout Europe, as well as Cantillon's own general business savvy, he was able to turn around the Chevalier's bank into a profitable institution. At this point, things are going very well for Cantillon. He had spent several years in service to the British government and was now operating his own successful bank out of Paris. And then one day, by fate or by chance, he met a man by the name of John Law. Now, Law can be best described as a character, which is saying a lot considering that Cantillon's life is filled with these very colorful characters, but in many ways, John Law was the most characteristic of them all. Now, John Law was a lot of things. He was a businessman. He was apparently a very inspiring and compelling individual. As we'll see later on, people really believed in Law and that his various plans and schemes would all work out in the end. He was also a professional gambler for a period of time. And most importantly, he was also a monetary theorist. Law had written a book, the title of which translates in English to Money and Trade Considered with a Proposal for Supplying the Nation with Money. Now, the main idea behind Law's book is this question of why doesn't a nation utilize all of the resources at its disposal? I mean, at any particular time, you can look around and see natural resources that aren't being used, like trees that are not being chopped down, so on and so forth. If all this potential wealth is just lying around waiting to be used, why aren't people going out and getting it? Why isn't it being utilized? Now, the root of this problem, according to Law, was that there just wasn't enough money in the economy. If there was more money, then there would be more demand, and then it would be worth the while of a business to actually go and utilize these resources that are just lying around. In Law's view, the only restriction on our ability to actually go out and utilize these resources that we have is just the amount of money that exists. Because there's not enough money, these resources aren't put in play, which in turn reduces the entire prosperity of the nation. The way that we remedy this problem is by increasing the amount of money, which then increases the demand of the consumers, which increases the business activity, which then brings all these resources into play, which makes the entire nation more prosperous as a whole. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, if we increase the amount of money, isn't that going to cause inflation? Isn't that going to cause prices everywhere to start rising? Well, yes, that's correct, and as we'll see later on, that's exactly what happens whenever these plans are put into effect. However, the common understanding we have today of the connection between the money supply and inflation more broadly was not nearly as well understood in the past as it is today. Of course, there have been periods of inflation in the past up to this point, but it wasn't necessarily a common understanding like it is today that, well, if you, there's more money, then there's going to be higher prices. That just wasn't necessarily a common belief. As a matter of fact, Cantillon's work in economics is one of the things that helps to change that. 
Now, the reason for Law's belief that an increase in the supply of money is necessary to increase the total prosperity of a nation is probably a result of him taking literally different things that merchants back in that day would commonly say. Now, it was a common complaint in that day, whenever business was not particularly good, that there just wasn't enough money going around. And from the perspective of an individual merchant, particularly one that was not very well versed in economics, that does seem to be the problem, doesn't it? If my potential customers just had a little extra money in their pocket, then they would be able to spend it at my business, and all of my troubles would be alleviated. It might have been that Law had heard these expressions and took them literally, thinking that, well, what we really do need is more money. Now, Law had written his book, but he didn't want these ideas to just exist in theory. He wanted to try them out in practice as well. He went around to the various monarchs of Europe, promising them all great prosperity for their nation if only they would give him control over the money supply. He did so unsuccessfully, however, as it seems that the kings and queens of Europe were not particularly convinced by law and his claims of instant prosperity for anyone who would only give him a chance. Now, eventually he would find someone who was willing to entertain his ideas, but it wouldn't be a king or a queen, but a regent. In 1718, France didn't have a king, or it did have a king, but the king was too young to be on the throne, so a regent was handling the day-to-day affairs of the country. The infamous Louis XIV had just passed away a few years earlier, and Louis XV was still too young to ascend to the throne. One way or another, Law managed to get within the good graces of the regent, and persuaded him to let him try all of his monetary schemes out in practice. Now, the actual specifics for what Law planned to do is a little bit complicated, but I'll do my best to try to break it down here. Now, it had four main phases. The first phase would involve Law setting up a commercial bank that would later turn into a quasi-central bank, which would have a very great degree of control over the money supply. At this point, France was still on the gold standard, so the central bank that Law was hoping to create wouldn't have a complete control over the money supply, but it would still have a great deal of influence over it. In addition to his bank, Law had plans to set up a company, specifically a company that would have exclusive rights over development of France's territories over in the New World. Now, the idea is that eventually this company would start to issue debt, and that debt would also be conflated with debt that would be issued by his commercial bank as well. Law's idea here is that by conflating the debt of his bank with the debt of his company, the two entities would effectively become one, allowing them to act in unison. Now, the reason that Law was interested in combining the banking elements of his plan with the corporate elements of his plan goes all the way back to what he originally wrote in his book. Remember, he was interested in understanding why it is that resources were being unused. If you look over in the territories that France had in the New World in North America, there was a lot of resources that were being unused. Through the combination of the corporate and banking elements of his plan, Law was hoping to actually utilize these resources in the New World. The way in which he would do so takes us to the last phase of his plan. Ultimately, Law would try to convince the people of France to stop using their gold specie and move completely over to using paper banknotes. Now, the exact reason he wanted to do this brings us to the core behind all of Law's plans. In his mind, none of this was going to be possible if he didn't have control over the money supply. Law's entire theory about the way that the economy works revolves around the money supply. In his mind, if we want to be able to pull all of these resources out of the new world to actually enrich France as opposed to just leaving them over there, we need to be able to print more and more and more money. Now at this time, France is still on a gold standard, so it's not possible for law to literally go out and print more money. He can't just go out and print more gold. However, he can go out and print more banknotes. This presents a problem, though, because gold is the real money whenever you're under a gold standard, and banknotes are just a secondary money, or what might be described as a money substitute. 
People often use banknotes as a more convenient alternative to money because it's much easier to carry around banknotes in your pocket than it is to carry around gold coins. But strictly speaking, banknotes are not money. Gold is real money. But law can't print more gold. He can only print banknotes. Thus, he needs to make sure that people are not using gold. They're only using his banknotes. If his banknotes aren't worth anything, then he's not able to control the money supply and all of his plans just fall apart. Law had a lot of tools at his disposal that he used to try to incentivize people to use banknotes and forego using any gold, and we'll get to that a little bit later. The important thing to know for now is just that it was very, very important for Law's schemes that he needed to make sure that people were not using gold, the real money, and were only using banknotes, which were substitute money. After convincing the regent, Law started putting his plans into action. In 1716, he founded his own private bank, which would eventually accumulate more and more power over the years until it was effectively the quasi-central bank that Law was looking for. That was phase one down, now it's time for phase two. Law didn't start his own company immediately, however, as he was looking for other capable individuals that shared his vision and would be interested in founding the company with him. Law couldn't do everything himself, and he was looking for people who would be interested in managing the more day-to-day -day affairs of the company while he handled the big picture issues going forward. And it was during this time that John Law ran into a man by the name of Richard Cantillon. And now we return to the protagonist of our story. Several months after meeting in 1718, Law and Cantillon, along with another man by the name of Joseph Gage, remember that name, it'll come up again later, all founded a company together. Now, this wasn't the official name of the company, but it would become widely known as the Mississippi Company. The Mississippi Company was founded in 1718, but it wouldn't find any success until one year later in 1719. Now, the primary way that we can track the status of the Mississippi Company is through the price of its shares. Just like a publicly traded company would have shares available on the stock market today, they were shares that people could buy of the Mississippi Company as well. Now, some of these shares had been government debt that had been transferred into shares of the Mississippi Company as part of the arrangement that the regent had made with law for in exchange for his exclusive rights over developing France's territories in the New World. But many of these shares that were available for purchase were shares that law himself had issued. Time period sources tell us that the initial price for these shares was around 500 livres, livres being the currency of France at the time, spelled L-A-V-R-E-S. Now after this initial stock offering had taken place in 1718, prices for shares of the Mississippi Company started to drop dramatically. At one point towards the end of the year, prices were somewhere around 140 to 160 leave. Prices for shares were low, but they wouldn't stay there. By the time we get to July of 1719, prices for shares in the Mississippi Company start rising very, very quickly. Now, we don't have day-to-day -day records of what the stock prices were for shares, but we do know what stock prices were at various points in time. For instance, on the 25th of July, the price was 1,300 livres. The 29th of July, the price was 1,500 livres. On the 1st of August, the price was 2,250 livres. On 9th of August, the price was 2,330 livres. And on 14th of August, the price had risen all the way up to 2,940 livres. That means that prices for shares in the Mississippi Company had doubled in less than a month. Pretty impressive record, especially when you consider how low the price was at the end of 1718. Now the reason for this meteoric rise in share price wasn't just because investors thought that this was a fantastic enterprise and they just had to get in on it. Law was employing a variety of tricks to try to pump up demand as much as possible for Mississippi Company shares. One of these was that law allowed shares for the company to be financed, meaning that smaller investors wouldn't have to necessarily pay all the money up front, but could pay it in installments over a period of time. 
Law was also going around to many of the biggest investors in France, whining and dining them to take up large positions in the Mississippi Company. And of course, the most important in Law's bag of tricks was money printing. Over this entire period, Law's bank has been printing more and more banknotes. Now, the effect of this was a speculative boom, one that was specifically focused in shares of the Mississippi Company. Now, because Cantillon had helped to found the Mississippi Company back in 1718, he had been holding on to a very large number of shares. But by the end of summer, around the middle of August or so, Cantillon decided to sell all of his shares. He decided that he had enough and that he was out. We can tell from Cantillon's writings at the time, as well as his remembrances later on in his life, that he had lost confidence in John Law at this point. Now, whether or not Cantillon ever really had any confidence in Law in the first place is another question altogether. It's totally possible that he thought he just wanted to make some money off of this and then get out as soon as he could. Regardless, at this point, by the end of summer, any confidence that Cantillon had in Law was completely gone. Now, the reason for Cantillon's loss of confidence is less than clear. He was a businessman, he was a banker, so it was probable that he saw the stock price of the Mississippi Company as fundamentally unsustainable. By the middle of August, share prices were almost six times the initial offering. Does that sound sustainable to you? Well, apparently it didn't to Cantillon, so he decided to sell. Now, there's something of a mythos that has arisen around Cantillon, of him being some kind of stock market savant. This is partly a result of William Stanley Jevons, the English economist who quoted in the introduction. Whenever he was writing about Cantillon, he made him out to be this genius of a sorts who knew exactly whenever the Mississippi Company shares were about to collapse. He sold right before that point, made a fortune, and made everyone else look like fools. Whenever Cantillon sold his shares, prices were near the highest point that they would reach. However, it would be several months more before share prices would completely collapse. Cantillon was wiser than many of the other French investors who had poured vast sums of money into shares of the Mississippi Company. However, he didn't play the stock market perfectly like Jevons and others suggest. Regardless, after Cantillon sold his shares around mid-August or so, he decided he wanted a vacation and left France for Italy. The reasoning for this departure is probably twofold. First, Cantillon wanted to enjoy his newfound wealth as well as just a break from the hustle and bustle of Paris. Secondly, he believed that the Mississippi Company was in imminent doom. Any day now, the whole thing was going to implode in on itself, and he wanted to watch the fireworks from a safe distance. We even have a letter that Cantillon had written around this time, responding to a friend who had asked him whether or not he should invest in the Mississippi Company. Cantillon had helped to found the company, after all, and he was asking him whether or not he thought it was a good idea to invest in some shares. Cantillon was very clear in his response that he thought it was a bad idea, and that the old Mississippi Bonanza was about to collapse on itself. Another reason for Cantillon's pessimism about the status of the Mississippi Company comes from his cousin, Bernard Cantillon. You see, a large part of the PR around the Mississippi Company at this point were these grandiose claims of resources in the New World spun out by John Law and his associates. They claimed that France's territories were full of large colonies and stocked full to the brim with material riches. Now, the Mississippi Company would soon transport all of these riches back to France, which would make everyone fabulously wealthy. Again, this is just another one of Law's tricks that he employed to try to drive as much demand as possible into shares of the Mississippi Company. Right after the establishment of the Mississippi Company in 1718, Cantillon had been given a piece of land over in the New World. Now, Cantillon had never seen this land before, so he had no idea who was on it or what was on it or what it looked like. So he sent his cousin Bernard Cantillon over to the New World, along with a ship, to go check it out and then report back to him with what he found. 
Bernard Cantillon and his expeditionary crew would arrive in the New World in August of 1719, but what they found was a far cry from the marketing claims of John Law. France's colonies were severely underdeveloped at this point, nothing like the English colonies in Massachusetts. Even the largest cities, like New Orleans, were little more than glorified shantytowns. If there were any grand cities or large stocks of natural resources there, well, Bernard Cantillon and his crew didn't see them. Whenever his cousin's report reached Cantillon several months after arriving in the New World, it just reinforced Cantillon's belief that the Mississippi Company was doomed to failure. Cantillon would remain in Italy for the next several months, all the way up until the spring of 1720. But while Cantillon was getting some R&R in Italy, the Mississippi bubble was raging on even stronger than ever back in Paris. Two of the largest speculators in the Mississippi Company at this point were Joseph Gage, who you'll remember was one of the original founding members of the Mississippi Company along with Law and Cantillon, and his lover, later turned wife, the Lady Mary Herbert. Those two names are important, as they'll come up again later in the story, so make sure to keep them in the back of your mind. In order to get their hands on as many shares of the Mississippi Company as possible, Gage and Herbert took out loans from several bankers, one of which was Cantillon. Of course, they were operating under the assumption that the price of the Mississippi Company shares would increase and they'd be able to pay off the loans without a problem. The entire issue of these speculative loans is one that we're going to come back to later, so keep that also in the back of your mind. Even though Gage and Herbert were making some financially dubious decisions at this point, they had made a serious amount of money off of the Mississippi Company bubble. Some contemporary sources claim that Joseph Gage had made one million pounds by the end of 1719, which would be equivalent to 175 million pounds of today's money. Now, that's probably somewhat of an exaggeration, but that gives you an idea of the ballpark we're talking about. Apparently, at one point, Joseph Gage even offered to buy the entire kingdom of Poland from its king. As in, just buying the whole kingdom, like he would just be the king now. Uh, the King of Poland refused, so he was unsuccessful in his attempts, but that just gives you an idea of how wealthy Gage really was at this point. The Lady Mary Herbert made much of her money off of investing in calls on Mississippi Company share prices. This involves buying the shares now and then selling them later at some specified date, hoping that in the meantime the market price has increased. This was one of the first times that more complex financial instruments like this had ever been used. Of course, Gage and Herbert weren't the only ones making money off of the speculative bonanza. The word millionaire was coined around this time. They had to literally create a new word in order to express just how much money some people were making. In spring of 1720, Cancion finally returned to Paris from his self-imposed exile-slash-vacation in Italy. Now, to quickly return to Law's four-step plan, phase one had gone off without a hitch, the creation of a bank which later turns into a quasi-national bank, Phase 2 had been a roaring success, with the Mississippi Company becoming a sensation. Now it was time for Phase 3, to combine the two into one. This would be carried out on February 22, 1720, whenever the Royal Bank, the name for Law's Bank, would be merged with the Mississippi Company. Phases 1, 2, and 3 were now complete, but there was still Phase 4. If you'll remember, Phase 4, the final phase of the plan, was to convince the French people to stop using gold and to start using banknotes. In many ways, this was the most important phase of Law's plan. He needed people to stop using the money that he couldn't control and to start using the money that he could control. In order to do this, his plan was to make it as inconvenient as possible for people to continue to use gold specie. The first step he would make towards accomplishing this goal was officially raising the price of gold specie relative to banknotes. The object here was to get the people to sell off their gold specie and get banknotes instead. 
The price was higher, so they'd be getting a better deal for their gold than they did before. The second step that Law would take was to have an official edict issued, limiting the amount of gold that any one person was allowed to have. Over the next several months, these measures would prove to be successful. The amount of gold that was held by the French people decreased. However, all was not well. There was a problem, specifically a problem in the foreign exchange market. Because the amount of gold in France had decreased and the number of paper banknotes had increased, we would expect the value of the French leave to decrease relative to other currencies on the foreign exchange market. The problem was that John Law had expressly promised that the value of the leave wouldn't decrease. In fact, he had promised the exact opposite. He promised that the value of the leave was going to increase as a result of the decreased gold holdings and money printing. The thing is that most of the population believed him. Everything else that Law had tried up to this point had worked, so why not trust him here? By this point, Law had taken on a pseudo-mystical status, with people viewing him as some kind of economic genius, especially by people who had made a lot of money off of the Mississippi bubble. Law said that the value of the leave was going to increase, and most people took him at his word. Now remember, Cantillon is back in Paris around this time. Maybe everyone else had believed Law when he said that the value of the leave was going to increase, but Cantillon was skeptical. Cantillon knew that Law was fighting against the very principles of economics. Supply and demand don't just start twisting themselves into pretzels just because you want it to be so. Cantillon even has an entire section in the essay detailing how money printing at home devalues the currency abroad, but we'll get more to that later. Cantillon had bet before that Law was going to fail. Now, that bet hadn't come to fruition yet, but he was about to wager even more money on Law's eventual failure. The Mississippi bubble was still in full swing at this point, and Cantillon got in the business of making loans to anyone who was interested in speculating on shares. However, these loans came with a twist. Cantillon would lend them French leave, but he would want to be repaid with British pounds. Many investors, such as the aforementioned Joseph Gage and Lady Mary Herbert, were more than willing to take up Cantillon on his offer. Even when the interest rates on these loans were absurdly high, sometimes as high as 55%, they were willing to take Cantillon's money. The importance of Cantillon lending out French leave and then asking for British pounds back is that as the value of the leave decreased, as Cantillon knew it would, the value of the money that he gave the investors would be decreasing, while the value of the money that the investors would have to pay back to him would be constantly increasing. In effect, the actual price of taking out these loans was much higher than any of these investors realized. Cantillon would continue on in his role as banker in Paris for several more months, but as trouble started brewing for the Mississippi Company, he started moving farther and farther away from Paris, eventually spending most of his time in Amsterdam. It was around this time when things started looking very grim for the Mississippi Company. The first problem was that the Royal Bank, the bank that Cantillon had founded and evolved into a pseudo-national bank, was running low on gold specie. Even though Law had promised that the value of the French leave would increase, the opposite happened, as Cantillon foresaw. The result was that more and more foreigners were exchanging their French leave for its gold value, thus depleting the Royal Bank of its gold stores. The result was that Law was forced to officially backtrack his planned devaluation of gold specie. He formally announced these plans in what would infamously become known as the May 21st Decree. The power of the May 21st Decree was more symbolic than anything else. For the first time, Law's schemes had been foiled, and he was forced to admit as such to the entire French public. Up to this point, Law had been seen as a virtual economic messiah. He was going to lead the French people into the great economic promised land. The problem was now that Law was exposed for what he truly was. He was a con man. 
The result is that the French general public quickly started to lose confidence in Law. The feeling was one of betrayal, that they had been duped, that Law had made promises to them that he simply could not keep. This loss in confidence led to Law's second major problem, the decrease in value of Mississippi Company shares. Ever since March of 1720, Law had promised that share prices would not drop below 9,000 leave. The problem was now that share prices were plummeting, dropping all the way down to 5,000 leave. As a result, investors in the Mississippi Company started turning on Law as well. The people had turned on him, the investors had turned on him, and very soon, the regent would turn on him as well. Shortly after the May 21st decree, the French regent removed Law from his lofty position as Controller General of the Finances and even placed him under house arrest. After a few days and giving cooler heads some time to prevail, Law was removed from his house arrest. However, he was not given back his position of Controller General of the Finance, but a much lower position. Law was also returned to be head of the Royal Bank, the bank that he had originally founded. Ultimately, however, it would do him little good. Over the next few months, Law would try his hardest to reinflate the stock price of the Mississippi Company, trying to bring it back to its once glory days. But to no avail. The Mississippi bubble was popped, and there was nothing that Law could do about it. Even though it was the May 21st decree that was the lethal blow to the Mississippi Company, its death would be very long and drawn out. As we previously stated, shortly after the May 21st decree, stock prices decreased from 9,000 leave to 5,000 leave. Over the next several months, they would continue to decrease slowly until by the end of the year, stock prices were hovering somewhere around 3,350 leave. Even more dramatic than this was the exchange rate of the French leave against other currencies. At the beginning of 1720, the French leave was exchanging against the British pound at a ratio of 30 to 1. At the end of September, however, it was exchanging at a rate of 92 to 1. Now remember, the loans that Law had made to Mississippi Company speculators were paid in leave, but they were to be repaid in British pound sterling. The recipients of these loans were perfectly fine with these terms because they believed John Law whenever he said that the value of the French leave would go up. However, as these exchange rates demonstrate, the value of the French leave only went down. The result is that the value of the loans that they had to repay Cantillon were much, much higher than the money that they had initially received. On top of this, the Mississippi Company's shares that they owned were only decreasing in value. Now at this point, in the wake of the collapse of the Mississippi Company, Cantillon is still residing in Amsterdam. While he was there, he continued to make loans to any and all takers, but he was also involved in the South Sea Company as well. Now we don't have time to cover every aspect of the South Sea Company here, as that would require an entire podcast in and of itself, but the Cliff Notes version of it is that a group of investors in England tried to imitate what Law had done in France. Similarly, Cantillon followed the exact same investing strategy he had with the Mississippi Company. He got in early, sold his shares early, and gave loans to anyone who wanted to speculate further. Well, in May of 1720, the South Sea bubble that had existed in England collapsed. Lots of people, including some very famous people like Isaac Newton, had invested in the South Sea bubble and lost a lot of money as a result. Cantillon, however, had fared quite well. As the Mississippi Company would continue to implode in slow motion over the course of 1720, Law wrote to Cantillon multiple times, begging him to come back to Paris to help revive the Mississippi Company in any way he could. As you might imagine, Cantillon was hesitant, to say the least. Despite the repeated urgings of Law, he ultimately decided against it. Eventually, Law would be forced into exile right before Christmas of 1720. 
Law would make his way back to England in the early 1720s with almost nothing to his name. After living there for several years, he would move to Venice in 1725. It is in Venice that he would die in 1729, at the age of 58. Whereas the Mississippi Company had cost John Law everything that he owned, Cantillon had made out quite well for himself. The French tax collectors estimated that Cantillon had made about 20 million livres after all was said and done. Once a lowly clerk working for the paymaster general, was now one of the richest men in all of France. After the collapse of the Mississippi Company and the exile of John Law, it would be several more years before Cantillon would return to Paris. His purpose in doing so was to try to avoid the French tax collectors as much as possible. His total tax bill from the Mississippi Company amounted to roughly 2.1 million livres. These efforts were partly successful, as Cantillon managed to avoid having to pay the main sum of his tax debt. However, his property in Paris was seized for his unwillingness to pay unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Regardless, he would make his triumphant return to Paris in 1727. Cantillon wasn't back in Paris just to do some sightseeing or to catch up with some old friends, however. He had given out loans to a lot of people, and, as you might imagine, he wanted that money back. There were a lot of people that owed Cantillon money, but among the foremost of them were the aforementioned Lady Mary Herbert and Cantillon's former co-founder of the Mississippi Company, Joseph Gage. Although we don't know the exact number of their outstanding debt, it's estimated that the two of them owed Cantillon somewhere in the neighborhood of £64,000. Given that Herbert and Gage had been completely ruined by the pop of the Mississippi bubble, they had little chance of ever paying off this sum. However, Gage and Herbert had a plan. This plan involved taking Cantillon to court and accusing him of fraud or mismanagement or whatever other charges they could think of in order to try to weasel their way out of ever having to pay him anything. Gage and Herbert would attempt this strategy, and they would also convince many of Cantillon's other debtors to attempt this strategy as well. The result was that from this point until the end of his life, Cantillon would be embroiled in constant legal troubles and court cases. These court cases would generally revolve around two main accusations against Cantillon. The first was that the rates of interest that Cantillon was charging to his lenders were usurious in nature. The question of usury had been examined countless times over by European philosophers and political thinkers. Many of the earlier European scholastics had railed against usury, claiming that any and all interest rates were inherently immoral and illegitimate. By this point in history, however, most people had accepted that interest as a phenomenon was perfectly natural and acceptable. Even so, however, many European countries, such as France, still had usury laws that were nominally on the books. We still haven't gotten rid of this attitude even today, as many Western countries still have usury laws in place. This first charge of usury against Cantillon never made much of an impression, but it was a second charge that was much more tantalizing and possibly incriminating. You see, one of the stipulations that Cantillon had made with these loans were that his debtors were supposed to put up some form of collateral, usually in the form of Mississippi Company shares, as a form of payment in case they would be unable to repay their loans. They alleged that Cantillon was taking these shares, selling them, and then lending that money out as well. In effect, he was taking their shares, selling them, and lending their own money right back to them. If this was true, and if Cantillon was actually guilty of these charges, then it would have been very illegal. These shares were serving as collateral, and Cantillon wasn't supposed to claim them as his own property unless the debtors were unable to pay. If he was selling these shares for his own purposes, then Cantillon would be guilty of fraud. Very interesting claims, but do they have any merit? 
was Cantillon actually taking these shares that were supposed to be used as collateral and using them for his own purposes? As you might imagine, it's difficult for us to tell 300 years after the fact. However, we do have some indication from Cantillon himself that not all of his actions might have been completely above the board, so to speak. Earlier in the 1720s, Cantillon had been partnered with a man by the name of John Hughes. In 1721, after the pop of the Mississippi bubble and Cantillon's first lawsuit started rolling in, Cantillon sent Hughes a letter detailing exactly what Hughes should do in the hypothetical event that a lawsuit against Cantillon didn't go very well. Cantillon was very blunt, saying that Hughes' only options were to either flee the country or go to jail. As it would later turn out, however, this wasn't some mere hypothetical. During Cantillon's trial against the Lady Mary Herbert, several witnesses came forward on behalf of Herbert to claim that Cantillon had instructed them to sell the shares that he had received from his debtors as collateral. Now, these witnesses are probably not credible, and more likely than not are just stooges that Herbert had paid off. Regardless, it had the intended effect on Cantillon and his defense. In order to save his own skin, Cantillon was forced to testify that he had nothing to do with his bank back in Paris or with John Hughes. The result of this was that Cantillon might dodge a bullet, but he was effectively throwing his partner under the bus. This legal maneuvering greatly strained Cantillon's relationship with Hughes. Now, Cantillon was just doing what he had to do, and Hughes probably understood that to some extent, but it didn't seem like Cantillon was doing very much to try to help Hughes out either. Hughes would ultimately pass away before the conclusion of Herbert's lawsuit, but it appears that his relationship with Cantillon had soured to the point that he tried to stab Cantillon in the back. Just a week before his death, he had sent a letter to Joseph Gage offering to open up the books of their bank to show all of the business dealings that had occurred in 1720. If Cantillon had been guilty of fraud, then this would be shown in the bank records. If displayed before the court, this would almost certainly be enough to convict him. However, Hughes would pass away before his betrayal was complete, and he never got the chance to turn over these records to Gage or Herbert. However, Cantillon's trouble with his bank's records didn't end here. After John Hughes' death, his widow approached Cantillon asking him for money for Hughes' share of their bank. Cantillon, probably thinking he had much bigger things to worry about, ultimately gave Hughes' widow nothing, stating that Hughes was actually in debt to him, and in reality it should be Hughes' widow that was paying Cantillon and not the other way around. Angered by Cantillon's refusal to give her what she felt like she was owed, Hughes' widow was recruited by Gage and Herbert to help bring Cantillon down. Specifically, Hughes' widow was tasked with finding the records for Cantillon and Hughes' bank, the same records that Hughes had originally tried to turn over to Gage, but died before he could do so. Cantillon was made aware of the hunt for the bank records, and managed to swoop them up before Hughes' widow was able to locate them. However, she was able to get her hands on all of Hughes' correspondence, which included the aforementioned letter that Cantillon had sent to Hughes, detailing what he should do in the event that a lawsuit against Cantillon went poorly. As we also mentioned, depending on how you read this letter, it could be seen as rather incriminating on Cantillon's part. The revelation of these and other letters inspired many of Cantillon's debtors to bring lawsuits against him as well. Thus, even though Herbert and Gage were unsuccessful in their lawsuits against Cantillon, there would be plenty of others that would try as well. In 1729, yet another of Cantillon's former associates would turn against him. A man by the name of George Vernon, former associate of Cantillon, testified against him in court. This new testimony from Vernon would persuade the Carroll brothers, another one of Cantillon's debtors, to officially bring a criminal case against Cantillon. 
This case would include several charges against Cantillon, but principal among them were the aforementioned usury and alleged fraud concerning the loan collateral, but it also included Cantillon's hiding his business books from the court. This was a momentous change of events against Cantillon, as all the previous lawsuits against him had only been civil cases. This was the first time that a criminal case had been raised. On November 7th of 1729, Cantillon would be officially arrested by the French police. His stay in prison would be relatively short, however, as he was only questioned by the authorities for four days before being released on November 11th. The Carroll brothers were outraged when they heard of Cantillon's release, and even managed to get another warrant signed for his arrest. However, because of an error in the way the warrant was signed, the date on it was incorrect, the warrant couldn't be served, and thus Cantillon remained a free man. Just under two months later, at the end of January of 1730, Cantillon's trial with the Carroll brothers was brought before the Tournal Criminal, which was essentially the French version of the U.S. Supreme Court. In many ways, this was the climax of Cantillon's legal troubles over the past several years. If he could be acquitted of these charges, before the highest court in all of France, then his debtors would be effectively forced to pay back what they owe. Any other cases brought against him would be dead on arrival. The Carrolls brought each one of their witnesses before the court, and each one of them had a similar story to tell. They all testified that Cantillon had taken the shares he had received as collateral, and he sold them for his own enrichment. However, Cantillon had an ace up his sleeve. He went before the court, and he brought with him his bank's record books, the same ones that the Lady Mary Herbert had spent so much time and energy trying to get her hands on. What Cantillon's records showed was that he had sold most of his shares by June 26, 1720, far from the peak price of Mississippi Company shares. If Cantillon was selling other people's shares in order to enrich himself, why wouldn't he wait for the price to keep getting higher? Additionally, all of the shares in the Mississippi Company were fungible. There wasn't any serial numbers or identifying features of any kind to distinguish one share from another. Thus, it wasn't possible for the Carroll brothers to actually prove that any of the shares that Cantillon had sold didn't actually belong to him. The court found this defense from Cantillon convincing enough, and on February 1st of 1730, all charges against Cantillon were officially dropped. This was a major blow to the Herbert Gage faction, but they weren't completely done yet. Cantillon was still facing one lawsuit from Gage, which at this point was unlikely to go anywhere, but he was also facing another lawsuit from a man by the name of Christopher Balfe. Cantillon's life was filled with lots of very interesting characters, but Christopher Balfe was probably the strangest of them all. Balfe had alleged that Cantillon had tried to bribe him at one point, and whenever Balfe refused the bribe, Cantillon had hired assassins to try to kill him. No serious evidence was ever presented in favor of this claim, but it was still another lawsuit that Cantillon would have to contend with. It was probably around this time that Cantillon finished writing his essay. Now, we can't know for sure, obviously, because the manuscript isn't dated, but Cantillon stops referencing any dates or people that go beyond the early 1730s or so. As a result, it was probably around this time whenever the essay was completed. Because we haven't had the opportunity to do so yet, we're going to spend a few minutes discussing Cantillon's essay, what makes it interesting, what makes it unique, and what makes it such a landmark in the history of economic thought. To begin, Cantillon was one of the first to see economics as its own independent discipline. Throughout most of the past, people had viewed economics as being a subset of politics or ethics. Cantillon was one of the first to see economics being worthy of its own individual discussion and debate. It was this impetus that led Cantillon to writing the essay in the first place, a book which is completely dedicated to economics. 
In fact, it would be a very long time before economics was completely rid of these past connotations. This is evidenced by the old-timey word for economics of political economy, a term which would indicate that economics is a subset of or in some way related to politics. Kantian was also one of the first to see the entire economy as a whole, as an entire unit to be studied. As we mentioned, most thinkers in the past were content to view economics only in specific topics. Kantian, however, was interested in viewing the economy and all of its mechanisms and how each of its parts would interact with each other. In Kantian's view, the very foundation of the economy is land and landowners. On the very first page of the essay, Kantian writes, quote, Land is the source or matter from which all wealth is drawn. Man's labor provides the form for its production, and wealth in itself is nothing but the food, conveniences, and pleasures of life. Now this initially might sound strange, but it's important to place Kantian's comments in their proper context. What Kantian is doing here on the very first page of his essay is responding to the position of the mercantilists. In Kantian's day, the mercantilists were some of the foremost economic thinkers, and in their view, the source of all wealth was money. As a result, their advice to any lords or kings that would listen to them was to try to keep as much money in their country and prevent as much of it from leaking out as possible. In practice, what this meant was doing everything in their power to encourage exports and doing everything in their power to discourage imports. This is because as goods are sent out from the country, money comes back into the country to help pay for those goods, and as imports are brought into the country, money goes out from the country to pay for those goods. What Kantian is saying here, without explicitly saying it, is that the mercantilists are wrong. Money can't be the source of all wealth, as money is only valuable insofar as you can purchase things with it. You can only purchase things with it if there are goods and services for you to purchase, and there can only be goods and services for you to purchase if they've first been produced. The mercantilists have it all wrong, as Kantian is trying to show. Additionally, Kantian was one of the first to really examine the role of the entrepreneur in the market economy. Given that Kantian himself was an entrepreneur, this shouldn't be much of a surprise. In Kantian's view, the entrepreneur is both the one who enables and carries the risk of any business enterprise. In the essay, Kantian writes, quote, These entrepreneurs never know how great the demand will be in their city, nor how long their customers will buy from them, since the rivals will try, by all sorts of means, to attract their customers. All this causes so much uncertainty among these entrepreneurs that every day sees some of them go bankrupt. Kantian goes on to write, quote, If there are too many hat makers in a city or on a street for the number of people who buy hats, the least patronized must go bankrupt. On the other hand, if there are too few, it will be a profitable business, which will encourage new hat makers to open shops, and in this manner, entrepreneurs of all kinds adjust themselves to risks in a state. Kantian sees the entrepreneur as one who has to constantly adjust himself to the demands of the consumer, but his success in these adjustments is never certain. As Kantian says, businessmen have no shortage of rivals who are eager to lure their customers away from them, thus sending them into bankruptcy. If businessmen are successful in foreseeing the best opportunities to serve the consumer, then they'll earn a profit. However, if they fail in these endeavors, then they will earn a loss. In Kantian's words, if there are too many hat makers, then the least successful among them will go out of business, but if there are too few hat makers, then more entrepreneurs will be drawn to the hat making business. Lastly, Kantian was also one of the first to see the effect that inflation would have on various prices throughout the economy. In fact, the term for this phenomenon still bears his name today, referred to as Kantian effects. In the essay, Kantian describes the process of inflation throughout the economy, writing, quote, 
If the increase of hard money comes from gold and silver mines within the state, the owner of these mines, the entrepreneurs, the smelters, refiners, and all the other workers will increase their expenses in proportion to their profits. Their households will consume more meat, wine, or beer than before. They will become accustomed to wearing better clothes, having finer linens, and having more ornate houses and other desirable goods. Consequently, they will give employment to several artisans who do not have all that much work before, and who for the same reason will increase their expenditures. All this increased expenditure on meat, wine, wool, etc. necessarily reduces the share of the other inhabitants in the state who do not participate at first in the wealth of the mines in question. The bargaining process of the market, with the demand of meat, wine, wool, etc. being stronger than usual, will not fail to increase their prices. What Cantillon is pointing out here is that whenever new money enters the economy and the money supply is inflated, it doesn't affect all prices or everyone's income all at once. It affects particular incomes and particular prices at particular times. Those who are nearest to the origin of this new money, which in Cantillon's example are those associated with the gold and silver mines, are the first to have their incomes increased. As Cantillon points out, they can now purchase more goods than they could beforehand. In turn, those who receive the money from those first spenders also have their incomes increased. They also are able to purchase more goods and services than they were beforehand. Now this is all well and good for those who are among the first to receive the new money, but their increased consumption is to the detriment of those who are among the last to receive it. This is because, as Cantillon points out, whenever this new money is first spent, it bids up the prices of the goods and services that it is spent on. This is a problem for anyone who has not yet received the new money, as the prices of the goods and services they consume has increased while their income has remained the same. That means that in real terms, their income has actually decreased. Therefore, the function of inflation in Cantillon's view is a transfer of wealth to those who received the money first from those who received the money last. As we pointed out earlier, the name for this insight of the way that money affects various prices at various times still bears Cantillon's name. We still refer to them as Cantillon effects. While the essay was probably written sometime around the early 1730s, it would not be officially published until 1755. This was because of the French censors, who very carefully watched over what books were published and circulated in the country. Whenever the essay was originally finished in the early 30s, the censors almost certainly wouldn't have given their approval for publication, and thus the essay had to circulate in manuscript form for two and a half decades before it could be officially published. Even in this unofficial manuscript form, however, the essay was extremely influential. The physiocrats, which could be described as the first proper school of economics, were greatly inspired by the essay. Other individuals, such as David Hume and Adam Smith, almost certainly read the essay as well. Despite this early influence, after the publication of Adam Smith's famous Wealth of Nations, Cantillon's work was mostly forgotten. It would not be until over a century later, in the aftermath of the Marginal Revolution, that William Stanley Jevons, who we quoted at the beginning of this episode, would rediscover Cantillon's work. The unfortunate tendency of Adam Smith and many other classical economists was to toss aside any economic work that had come before the wealth of nations. The result was that Cantillon was swept into the dustbin of history, only to later be rescued by Jevons. If Cantillon had lived longer and had time to publish more work, then he might have avoided this fate. Nevertheless, Cantillon would pass away in 1734, making him in his late 40s or early 50s. The circumstances of his death, however, were very mysterious, and remain so even to this day. As we have previously mentioned, by the early 1730s, Cantillon had escaped the charges of the Carroll brothers, but was still facing the accusations of Christopher Balfe. 
Cantillon's case with Balf would carry on into the 1730s until Cantillon's very sudden death on May 14, 1734. At this time, Cantillon was living in London. Specifically, he was living on Albemarle Street, which was a very well-to-do neighborhood in the city. On the night of May 14th, sometime between 10.30 and 3.30 a.m., Cantillon's house caught fire. Cantillon's house, along with the houses of two other English lords, would be consumed by the flames. We do have a rough sketch of the events of that night, and it goes as follows. His servant, Elizabeth Pembroke, had put him to bed, but Cantillon insisted on staying up to read his books in bed with a candle still lit. After Cantillon's house had caught fire sometime between the aforementioned hours of 10.30 and 3.30 a.m., Isaac Barrage, another one of Cantillon's servants, rushed into Cantillon's room and attempted to pull him out of his bed. He claimed he tried to pull Cantillon out from his bed to the staircase by his bedroom. From there, he could then pull Cantillon down the stairs and out of the house to safety. However, before he was able to do this, he passed out from smoke inhalation. Barrage also claimed that by the time he reached Cantillon, his body, face, and bowels were all severely burned. It was only after the flames had subsided and Cantillon's house had been reduced to ashes that Cantillon's body was found. However, his head was missing. The initial reaction by most people to the news of the fire on Albemarle Street was that it had just been an unfortunate accident. However, with the discovery of Cantillon's missing head, many people began to suspect that foul play was afoot. After this revelation, all of Cantillon's servants were arrested on the charges of conspiracy to commit murder. They were all questioned, and some of them even gave their own theories as to what they believe had happened. One of the servants testified that he thought Isaac Barrage was behind the whole thing, that he had killed Cantillon, stole all of his possessions, and then tried to make the whole thing look like an accident. Regardless, none of the servants confessed to any crime, nor were any of them convicted. Even though at this point there wasn't a main suspect, most people still believed that Cantillon's death was no mere accident. Testimony from other witnesses supported the idea that Cantillon was murdered as well. A man by the name of Malachi Kelly had been a passerby who noticed Cantillon's house burning on Albemarle Street. He rushed into the house to try to help and went up to Cantillon's bedroom where Isaac Barrage was trying to pull Cantillon's body out from his bed. As soon as Kelly saw Cantillon's body, he remarked to Barrage that he thought Cantillon had been murdered and that he hadn't died from the flames. Kelly also testified that he had seen red spots on Cantillon's body, indicating that he had been bleeding, but he didn't see any evidence that Cantillon had been burnt. Two other passerbys, by the name of Charles Woolmer and Oliver Price, also testified that they had seen red spots on Cantillon's body, but no evidence of burning or scorching. To make matters even more complicated, another witness, a man by the name of William Marson, testified that he didn't see any red spots or evidence of burning on Cantillon's body. And because we didn't have enough conflicting testimony already, another witness, a woman by the name of Mary Merced, was passing by the house while all of this was happening, and she testified that she had seen Cantillon's head fall down the stairs whenever Barrage was trying to pull his body out of his bedroom. And just to put a cherry on top, Francis Brooks, who was a shopkeeper watching the whole thing go down, stated that as Barrage was dragging Cantillon's body down the stairs, his midsection came open and his bowels spilled out. So, which of these witnesses are correct? Was Cantillon burnt? Was he bleeding? Was he beheaded? Was he disemboweled? Or all of the above? Well, standing here 300 years after the fact, it's almost impossible for us to tell. With several witnesses giving conflicting reports, it's difficult for us to piece together what actually happened that night. It seems that even the authorities at the time weren't quite sure what to make of all this, as there was never any definite conclusion made on whether or not Cantillon's death was a murder. 
The one detail that we can establish, with at least a relatively high degree of certainty, is that Cantillon's body was burned, contrary to the testimony of Kelly, Bulmer, and Price. This is because Cantillon's house, obviously, was on fire, and given that Barrage had collapsed from smoke inhalation before he could carry Cantillon's body successfully down the stairs and out into the street would indicate that the fire was fairly advanced by the time that the rescue was being attempted. Thus, it was likely that Cantillon's body was burned, especially if it had been a candle in his bedroom that had started it in the first place. Of course, even this detail gives us little insight into who might have committed the crime or what their motivations could have been. Regardless, after Cantillon's servants had all been questioned and then acquitted of any crimes, suspicions turned to a man by the name of Joseph Denier. Denier had been Cantillon's baker for 11 years before being dismissed just 10 days before Cantillon's death. The authorities tried to locate Denier to question him, but he was never found. In the months after Cantillon's death, and even up until present day, Denier has remained the prime suspect. Of course, the idea of a disgruntled former employee being so disgruntled he decides to murder his former boss is a little far-fetched, but it's not like we have a lot of great suspects to choose from here. And of course, the possibility shouldn't be discounted that there was no murder, that Cantillon wasn't killed, but his house just burned down on accident, just like everybody initially assumed. However, there's another hypothesis to explain what happened on the night of May 14th, 1734. There was no accident, there was no murder, but instead, Cantillon faked his own death. Now, I know what you're probably thinking, that sounds crazy, way too far-fetched to be true. However, this theory has been propounded by Antoine Murphy, who was one of Cantillon's modern and most prolific biographers. I'm not saying this is necessarily what happened, but it is a possibility that should be taken into account. Now, if Cantillon did actually fake his own death, our first question would obviously be the motive. Why would he have any reason to do so? By 1734, Cantillon had managed to defeat most of his foes in court. However, as previously mentioned, he was still facing a lawsuit from Christopher Balfe. It's possible that Cantillon believed that even if he won his case with Balfe, yet another accuser would step forward and he would have to spend even more time in court. Cantillon might have believed that these lawsuits would continue on and on until his death. If he could fake his own death, however, then he could finally put a stop to these endless accusations and live the rest of his life in relative peace. That establishes a motive, but do we have any hard evidence that Cantillon did actually fake his death? This takes us to the mysterious figure of the Chevalier de Louvigny. On December 11th, 1734, a shadowy figure by the name of the Chevalier de Louvigny arrived at the Dutch colony of Suriname. He brought with him an assortment of cargo, including 16 rifles, a barrel of powder, a keg of iron instruments, and a large number of gold coins. The captain of the ship that the Chevalier was on thought that he was a suspicious figure and reported him to the governor of Suriname whenever they arrived in harbor. The governor ordered the captain to bring the Chevalier to him to have his passport inspected, but before he could be apprehended, he managed to escape along with four slaves. The Chevalier managed to escape with the slaves to a hiding place along the Kamawine River. However, the Dutch authorities were soon informed of their location and sent a group of soldiers to arrest them. The soldiers captured three of the slaves, as well as all of the cargo left behind by the Chevalier, but he escaped before the soldiers arrived, slipping through their grasp once again. When the cargo being carried by the Chevalier was taken back to the governor and inspected, it was found that he was carrying documents. Documents that belonged to Richard Cantillon. Now, it's difficult to know what exactly to make of this mysterious Chevalier de Louvigny. 
Some have suggested that this might in fact be Joseph Denier, who after killing Cantillon took on a false identity and tried to hide in Suriname in South America. However, this is unlikely for a number of reasons. First, why would Denier be carrying papers that would connect him back to Richard Cantillon? Why would he be bringing evidence to incriminate himself? It's possible that he later planned to present these to Gage and Herbert in hopes of earning some kind of reward. However, this doesn't make much sense, as Gage and Herbert needed Cantillon alive for them to bring lawsuits against him. Cantillon wasn't any good to them if he was dead. Additionally, Gage and Herbert had been financially ruined by the pop of the Mississippi bubble, so they wouldn't have been able to give very much to Denier in the first place. It doesn't make much sense for the Chevalier to be carrying these papers if he was actually Joseph Denier. However, it makes perfect sense if he was actually Richard Cantillon, as Cantillon could use these documents to prove his real identity if he ever needed to. Other than just the Chevalier de Louvigny, there are several other details that suggest that Cantillon might have faked his own death. For instance, the day before Cantillon's death, which would be May 13th, 1734, a large sum of £10,000 was withdrawn from his bank account. Recall that the Chevalier was carrying with them a large assortment of cargo, cargo that would be expensive and would have to be paid for. Additionally, if Cantillon was dead, then he obviously couldn't take money out of his bank account. Therefore, any money he wanted to still have access to would have to be withdrawn beforehand. Another point of interest is that all of the valuables that were in Cantillon's house were not found in the rubble after it had burned down. This makes sense if Cantillon was murdered, as his murderer probably wouldn't want his perfectly good gold and silver to go to waste. However, it also makes sense if Cantillon knew this was going to happen in advance. Lastly, there were only two passerby witnesses who saw the face of Cantillon's alleged corpse, and only one of which, William Marson, who positively identified it as being Cantillon's face. However, Marson didn't work for Cantillon, so it's possible that he misidentified him, and the face on the corpse was not Cantillon's face. Now, if Cantillon did actually fake his own death, we can only speculate as to how he might have pulled it off. However, Antoine Murphy, the aforementioned Cantillon biographer, gives us one possible series of events. Cantillon acquired a corpse, probably from a local graveyard, and instructed Isaac Barrage to burn down his house on the 14th. On the night of the 14th, Cantillon is put to bed by Elizabeth Pembroke, but insists on staying up and leaving a candle on so as to provide an explanation for the accident that is about to befall him. Cantillon then sneaks out of the house and goes on his merry way, possibly with a new identity to the Dutch colony of Suriname, all the while Isaac Barrage places the corpse in Cantillon's bed and goes about the business of burning down Cantillon's house. The plan almost backfires, however, whenever onlookers, such as Malachi Kelly, start rushing into the house before the corpse is sufficiently burnt. Barrage then improvises by pulling the corpse out from the bedroom into the staircase, and then pretends to faint to ensure that the onlookers will instead rescue him and leave the corpse to its fate. So, how does Cantillon's story end? Did he die in an accident? Was he murdered? Or did he fake his own death to live happily ever after? Well, dear listener... I will leave that up to you. Looking back on Cantillon's life, I can't quite shake the feeling that, as eccentric and crazy as it was, that it was somehow fitting and appropriate.
By this I mean that Kantian was one of the first to see economics as its own discipline, and not just a subset of politics or ethics or you know, some other related science. While that might seem obvious to us today, it wasn't at all clear 300 years ago that there should be such a thing as economics, that it should be its own independent study. Maybe it had to be someone like Cantillon, someone that had worked as a banker and had seen the ins and outs of the Mississippi bubble to have this kind of vision in the first place. Regardless, it's ironic that economics, with its reputation of being the dismal science, was kicked off by an individual as colorful and energetic as Richard Cantillon. Before we end the episode here, I want to thank everyone for listening and for making it this far. All of the sources used for this episode will be in the description below, so feel free to check those out if you want to dig a little bit deeper. A free PDF of Cantillon's essay will also be linked below if you want to read what the man himself had to write. Again, thank you very much for listening. This has been Marginal Investigations. I'm your host, J.W. Rich, and I will see you next time. So, besides providing a safe place for depositing money and making it easy for people to transfer credit from one to another, a bank serves a community by making additional credit available for many purposes. Since most of these transactions involve the transfer of credit rather than cash, they increase the bank's deposits much more than they decrease its cash. Consequently, the bank needs to keep comparatively little cash on hand. By proper timing, new loans are made at about the same rate that old ones are repaid.